what's going on? It hasn't arrived yet. What hasn't? The thing I ordered from Amazon, the life-size polystyrene model of Flo the Progressive Insurance Lady, complete with name tag, upbeat personality, heavy makeup, and retro hairstyle. And when did you order it? 30 minutes ago. Well, that's not enough time for it to come. That doesn't matter. I saw something I wanted. I gave them my credit card number, and now I'm supposed to have it. Speaking of credit cards, how much did this cost? I forget, like 800-something dollars. Can you even afford that? I don't know that word. Afford? Is it Norwegian or something? No. Afford means you can pay for something. Of course I can pay for it. That's why I charged it. And now it's not even here. <clears throat> you know, there's an old expression among the Maasai tribe in Africa. You know about Africa? You probably have Ebola. Quarantine him! <laughs> That's exactly the point. Your first impulse is not always the right one. But you seem to give in to whatever it is. You don't agree with him, do you, Flo? Oh, God, I just remembered it's not here yet. I'm so miserable. Here's a radio show about that impulse thing he said. And now he's so old school, he waits an hour before waiting an hour to go swimming. Colin McEnroe. We're talking to Paul Roberts. He's the author of The End of Oil, The End of Food, and most recently, The Impulse Society, America in the Age of Instant Gratification. His writing has appeared in numerous publications, including the New Republic and Rolling Stone. And why are we talking to Paul Roberts? Because on Monday, November 10th, from 4 to 6, he will speak, sponsored by the Yukon Humanities Institute, at the Yukon Co-op Bookstore in Stores, Connecticut. Uh, and a book signing will follow the talk, and the event is free and open to the public. We'll mention it a few more times. We'll post it on our website. We'll do everything to make sure that uh, you don't miss Paul Roberts uh, in stores. But uh, first, we've got Paul Roberts on WNPR. So, Paul Roberts, the Impulse Society, let me, let me attempt to state the thesis, and then you can correct me. Um, Sounds great. Okay, so, I mean, the, the inherent thesis here is that um, that over the course of decades, we've reconfigured um, uh, not only American society, but, but, but everything down from there right down to uh, American neurology uh, towards short-term gain uh, and, and therefore to the detriment of long-term planning and communal thinking that we've oriented ourselves more and more towards, towards the self. We've allowed commerce to speak very directly to the self. Nothing could be more symbolic of that than Facebook and Google and, and Amazon, all of which now anticipate things that we want even before we know that we want them. But th this didn't start yesterday. It didn't start in the era of those three digital giants. It started decades ago. And, and I'll A, let you pick up the narrative, and B, let you tell us where you really do want to start this history. I think that that's a great summary. Um, I think the, the the real shorthand of that is that we're talking about a society that's great at giving us what we want and sort of dropping the ball at giving us what we need long term. So, you know, and that process begins, you know, with the beginning of the the consumer economy, which is you know more than a century ago. But you're right to point out that it's it's we're talking about the last few decades when it really accelerates, and it's driven by. You know, computers become cheaper and much more ubiquitous, so that lets business sort of do its thing, which is to get closer to the consumer and offer the consumer more of what we want. And I think there's also you got to throw in the the financial revolution that occurs in the 70s and 80s, which essentially instructs the economy that the most important thing is share price, really, I mean, when it comes down to it. And we're going to reorient 
corporate strategy and government regulation around really getting the highest possible share price. And other things are going to become secondary. And among those would be the idea that we used to have, which is that one of the functions of the economy is to produce decent jobs and a rising living standard for everyone. So now we find ourselves in an economy, again, that is great at, at producing you know, gadgets that can deliver immediate gratification and do it incredibly well. But again, we're losing the inclination to invest in those long-term projects that really were essential for you know, America's prosperity for so long. This may be kind of a, a forced um, anniversary, but uh, your, your talk at, at UConn will be almost, not quite, but a little bit um, uh, more than 50 years from the date of the election uh, that uh, pitted uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson against Barry Goldwater. So you have kind of an interesting moment there, right? You've got Johnson making, in some ways, kind of the last coherent collective ar argument for what mm -hmm. government and society can do. Promising a great society, saying, you know what, really, there's no need for people to be poor. We've got the resources. You know, if we handle this all right, people don't have to be poor. People don't have to be undereducated. Uh, you know, things can really work out for a lot of people. And as uh, some historians have noted, um, maybe the other salient figure in this drama isn't Barry Goldwater, but Ronald Reagan, who, uh, you know, right at the end of that campaign produced something it was called a time to choose or something like that. It was this kind of statement of what would uh, really turn out to be Reaganism. And then you saw, first of all, the, the inability of Johnson to Im implement the Great Society, and then the rise of, of Reaganism, which, I mean, not to make him the, the, the blame bearer for all the ills and declinism <laughs> described in your book. No, but why he, not? Yeah, he's kind of a pretty good symbol of it, right? I mean, you know, at that moment you see um, America's foreign power kind of given an education about the limits of that foreign power, uh, you know, and, and, and then as you go along here, you see the rise of Ronald Reagan and this articulation uh, of the idea. Well, actually, I mean, that comes a little bit later, really, the fall of Vietnam. You know, there, there's, mm -hmm. a, there's an indication that maybe America is just not going to be the, the exceptional nation that it always thought it would, was. And then you know, there's Ronald Reagan, who I think Rick Perlstein said didn't get that memo, and decided to make that same argument. We can kind of have anything we want. We can pursue it on a pretty individual basis, and the job of government is to get out of the way, not to get us to function collectively and farsightedly. Well, well, right, and and I think that uh, Goldwater is really important to to point out here because you know he represented this fear that the American economy had become too wrapped up with government, and that was one of the reasons that we were seeing a faltering of that post-war boom, and that yes, uh, we the thing that the government needed to do was get the heck out of the way and let for, you know capitalism do its thing, which is to maximize uh, returns. So. You know, from the standpoint of the ideologues, I suppose it made perfect sense to pull back on this collective notion, which had really been drilled into the population since Roosevelt's time. You know, as a, as a first as a response to the Depression, then as a response to the war. We'd had all these massive crises, and the only real response to those that made sense was a collective response. But as we, you know, as the cost of that collective response mounted, again, the Great Society being a good example, we rethought that. And that, which made perfect sense. The problem is that we sort of rethought it so far in the other direction that we ended up wanting almost, you know, just turning our decisions over to the to the marketplace as if the market was going to be a better arbiter of how we allocate resources, how we plan for the future. And, you know, so really what we're looking for is a way to reset and refine the middle ground. And, you know, that's a lot of what um, 
our current, you know, our the last few political campaigns have been about is how do you redefine and recover that middle ground? Although, I mean, some would argue that we haven't gotten to that point where we're really having that conversation right now. And I, I thought it might be interesting to take a few things and kind of run them through the Paul Roberts uh, Impulse Society prism. And we could start, actually, with that. And for that matter, the conversation you and I are having right now. Well, we're having it on a public radio station. Uh, even uh, on the day that we're recording this, there's a new Pew Research Center study uh, talking about what we already know, which is there's little overlap in the news sources that Americans turn to and trust now. Increasingly, uh, they seek out uh, one or two like-minded news outlets. They're not the same news outlets that other Americans seek out. So a certain kind of person is reading the New York Times and listening to NPR. There's another group of people who are watching Fox News or listening to Rush Limbaugh. The, The likelihood that, I mean, even this information environment has become kind of triggered towards the gratification of impulse and the reinforcement of short-term thinking, whether it's liberal short-term thinking or conservative short-term thinking, what's the likelihood that we reach a middle ground when we're not even kind of reading the same Rosetta Stone? Right. And and, and let's, let's back that up a step further and ask, you know, why is it that the political system so closely mirrors now the consumer market? I mean, you've just basically been describing a political version of consumer culture. And, and really... What One of the things that's driving that is the amount of money that's in the political system right now. Because if you think about it, there's the volume of cash is so massive that, you know, campaigns now operate like startups. They operate like initial public offerings. You know, can't, prospective candidates have to go around and look for seed money to see if they want to run. If they're lucky to get enough to get elected, then they spend, you know, hours a day replenishing their cash reserves. Um, the donors, we now think of them as investors, who have a, a, a Wall Street-like expectation for a high return. And the sad thing is, of course, that in politics, the surest, most efficient way to get a political return is to go negative and extreme. And so you see this sort of financialization of our political sphere ends us up in a, in a place where we're most likely to go for the short-term, the quick-hit partisan win, even at the expense of totally paralyzing the system and and foreclosing or nearly foreclosing um, any probability of, of long-term bipartisan investments. Let me push back at that idea a little bit um, and just sort of see where we go with it. Okay, so you could also make the argument that, I mean, for a long time what we said about politics was this, that it was really different from the commercial market, specifically from the market for consumer goods, uh, from what we think of, of as American retail, in the sense that, you know, if you get 20, 25 percent of the toothpaste market, you're having a hell of a year. You know, I mean, you're really doing great uh, if you get 20 percent of the people who buy toothpaste buying your toothpaste. But in politics, if you get less than 51 percent, you lose. So that in, in some ways, politics always has to pay, play a big numbers, zero sum kind of game. It can't be niche. It has to speak, you know, in, in the most encompassing possible way. And that one argument you could make is that there's a little bit of a change here now that well, right. because you can exactly. never get more than 51 percent. Uh, uh, you know, you're lucky to get more than 51 percent uh, of the political market. But Amazon has close to 100 percent of whatever the hell it is that, that, that Amazon represents. Yeah. But, but I mean, you know, the, the, the truth is that the, the political market is now sort of borrowing a lot of the tools and techniques that were perfected in the consumer market. And it's looking at that 51% and it's saying, hmm, what's the most efficient way to get 51%? Well, we're going to break up 
our target audience into sub audiences and we're going to go after each one based on individual political preferences and fears and biases and we can do that with something called micro targeting because our databases are now so massive and sophisticated that we'd look at everything from the magazines you subscribe to the things you buy the car you drive where you live how much you make you know do you belong to a gun club and we plug that in and we can predict pretty accurately and with increasing accuracy how you're going to respond to a given issue or to a given message or signal or dog whistle. So more and more campaigns are these micro-targeted, personalized, you know, heavily targeted um, initiatives that, that break the electorate up into very tiny pieces. Now, there are a number of problems with this. One is that in the old days, and by that you could say anything before, say, the 90s, Campaigns had to reach out and be inclusive. You know, so extreme candidates had to soften their edges because they were trying to appeal to that 51%. If you can micro-target, you no longer need to have a single sort of moderated message. You can have the moderated message for your national um, addresses, but you can switch back to an extreme segmented message for your micro-targeting. And so we so in, in, what that means is that some of your campaign goes underground. Not everyone is seeing the entire campaign. The second problem is that, in a weird way, traditional campaigns, for all the divisiveness, for the fact that they have to divide the country between red and blue, they are nonetheless somewhat inclusive because a candidate who's running for president has to talk about issues that are ultimately he or she thinks are going to unite the country. With a micro-targeted campaign, and, and and at the end of the campaign, people have to realize, okay, it was a campaign, we lost, but it's still the United States that we live in, and we've still got to come together to some degree and support this administration. After a micro-targeted campaign, the electorate has been fragmented, has been tossed around and sort of motivated and stimulated with highly extreme divisive messages. It's much more difficult, I would argue, for that electorate to come back together after the campaign and act as a single people. So I think that the 51% idea, while it's still important, is not nearly as significant as it used to be. Well, I think you're right about that, too. And, and one of the things you see, you see this within at least one of the two major parties, right? The Republican Party now, you know, really is two different parties. It's the whatever the Tea Party or whatever we want to call it, and then what used to be the Republican Party. And so there's a constant conversation going on there within w what is really only one segment uh, of the um, of the political population. But the other thing that I mm -hmm. wonder about, though, with the micro-targeting, this is something you talk about in the book. You talk about Karl Rove uh, as, uh, you know, one of the real sort of emergent figures within that world. Of course, then after Rove, you have Obama. And our, we still don't quite understand the ways in which the Obama campaign have perfect, has perfected the use of big data uh, in winning elections. But we do know that it's, you know, it's it's getting even more specific, right? That out of a 1,000 voters, they'll, they'll somehow or other know, you know, which 17 of them they really, you know, have a chance of getting to, and that four of those people are sort of fanatically concerned about Lyme disease. And so, you know, if we can get um, a robocall to them about Lyme disease, you know, I mean, that's a really great way to move them. That, that it's that specific, that all in all of the ways that, that commercial uh, interest perfected big data um, politics is just as basically 
put its hand on, uh, hands on the same data and is getting every bit as smart about it uh, as your local supermarket right. or, or anybody else is. And, and you just sort of wonder about that. I mean, I think that does plug in pretty well to your overall thesis, which is if all I really care about is Lyme disease and I'm incapable of thinking about anything else, then, you know, what exists now is a candidate smart enough to get to me and say, I know what you're obsessing about and that you don't care about anything else, and I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. Oh, right. And these are characterizations, uh, caricatures of of what's actually going on, because clearly campaigns haven't reached the point yet where they can drill down with quite that accuracy or with that quite that effectiveness. I mean, they would like to, you know, it's still the case that voters and would be voters are, are bathed in a sort of a sea of competing claims. And most of us, you know, we, we, we receive these with quite a bit of cynicism. But incrementally, the, sort of the aggregation, the cumulative effect of this, I think, is pretty corrosive. And I think it does push us toward that, you know, the image that you were just describing. And I think that, you know, really what's challenging about this is both the outcome, the political paralysis and the fragmentation that were that really hamstrings us to deal with a lot of the challenges we face. But on top of that, it's a repeat. It lets us see this impulse dynamic in another form because the idea behind the impulse society is that whether we're an individual uh, or an institution, we are moving almost reflexively toward the next level of capability. And that capability allows us to achieve our, to gratify our our, our aims. So with a political, and, and, and we do it more or less reflexively, because that's what humans have always done. As soon as we can find a more efficient way to hunt, we jump to it, because if you don't, you get wiped out. That pattern still obtains today, and and you can see where, if by blindly following that pattern, we get ourselves in all sorts of trouble. So if we're just you know upgrading from one, say, credit level, credit card level to the next, and then upping our expenditures based on the credit level without reflecting, without asking, geez, can I actually afford this? You can see how people can and, in fact, have, by the millions, got themselves in trouble. Well, in the political sphere, the equivalent situation is where a campaign says, look, I've got this big data capacity. I know the other team is using it, so I have no choice but to step up my use of, say, micro-targeting. And once you have that capability, you've got to use it, right? I mean, you've just invested, you know, 10 million bucks or a billion bucks in it. It's a sort of the 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 analogy would in the in the military arena would be boy we've got these drones so now we're going to sort of shape our our foreign policy around the fact that we can now nail people without any boots on the ground i mean it, i think the analogy plays out in a number of arenas and that's the sort of reflex that i'm really hoping to call attention to but what i what i wonder about is you know the the argument that you make um, in, in impulse society is is persuasive to me when I look at how we react to crises now. Uh, so instead of Lyme disease, let's talk about Ebola. You know, you, you see what's happening right now, which is this kind of panic over what is still really kind of a boutique or niche problem. You see national presser, pressure for outright travel bans and, and this panic self-interest in lieu of any kind of reasoned assessment of what the threat actually is, how the threat compares with other threats, what a good mm -hmm. long-term strategy might be for talking about a problem like this. Uh, uh, you don't see any of that, really, at least sort of what, what seems to be pretty close to the nerve endings of the American public is solve this problem for me in the most simplistic way and simplistically reassuring way that you can right now. 
Yeah, and, and I, I think that we have to distinguish between the anxieties that people actually have, if that were, you know, if we could measure that, versus the anxiety that the, the sort of the marketplace of ideas has, because there are so many messages flying around. And, and the marketplace of ideas, which is to say the arena of the media, it's busily talking about nothing but Ebola and then wants to resolve that conversation. And, and it, it reminds me of what's going on in, in the financial markets where financial traders, anyone who's an actor who's, who's got a decision to make in terms of investment, they're responding to all this information about various companies. And it used to be that that information, that stream of information was fairly narrow. You got reports from the companies themselves once a year, you know, and you got government reports about, you know, the prospects for this year's crop of corn. And you had maybe a few analysts and it was from that information that you made a decision to invest or, you know, to buy a stock or sell it. In in the last 30 years, the amount of information available on a company has increased by a factor of probably 100. It's coming from everywhere. And as the information goes up, the anxiety that's felt by financial players to act on that information goes up. They feel compelled because they're aware that other people are getting that information and it's well known in psychology that you know the more signals you get the higher the anxiety to to act and i think we're seeing a lot of that in the media because now so much is being said about this that now you know the average consumer sort of feels that something has to be done right away because so much is being said about this and it's very difficult for anyone to get an accurate measurement of the of the real threat this poses which as you point out is is minuscule i mean there's I you know I've seen the meme I'm sure you've seen it on Facebook more people have been married to Kim Kardashian than have died from Ebola in the United States and yet that's not the message that's getting through so again it's a matter of how do you step back from that you know how would you possibly restrict that flow of information without you know violating a very core american principle which is to have maximum freedom of information and I don't think you can do it at the producer level I don't think there's anything that we could say to media outlets that would encourage them to restrict the flow. I mean, that's how they make their money. I think it really comes down to how we educate and address and, and reach out to consumers of information. We really need to get to a break right now, although I just this is such a fascinating thing that you're saying right now. And I would just put one more ornament on it and just say that the other thing that's happened in such an information-rich society because of digital culture, because of all the choices people have, because of the fact that people can become active consumers uh, of news as opposed to passive recipients of it, is that if you don't give them information about Ebola, they can they get it someplace else and they conclude that you're covering it up, uh, which is, a, I think, an increasingly strong reaction to you know anything that any news outlet isn't talking about that can be found anywhere else by uh, an aggressively foraging consumer. That person immediately decides that there's a cover-up going on. Yeah, exactly. It becomes part of this sort of conspiracy culture that we've found ourselves in without, I mean, even people who aren't wackos are now sort of subscribing to the conspiracy. It's part of the cynicism we have. All right. We're talking to Paul Roberts. Uh, he's going to be at UConn um, Co-op Bookstore uh, and on November 10th, 4 to 6 at stores. We'll have more information about that on our website. We're going to grab a quick break right now. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about Paul's book, The Impulse Society, America in the Age of Instant Gratification. We're talking to Paul Roberts. As I said before, the book is The Impulse Society, America in the Age of Instant Gratification. Uh, he will be appearing at UConn on November 10th. That's Monday from 4 to 6, UConn Co-op Bookstore 
uh, and a stores center. So, you know, you were talking before about markets, uh, which is something that I really never do understand very well. But, um, you know, one of the things that we did see in 2008 was a sense that U.S. banks were taking too many risks and they were taking too many risks for a complicated set of reasons. You know, you work it back and a lot of it does feed right into the stuff that you're writing about in this book, uh, this sense that, uh, that that mortgage, the granting of mortgages uh, could become uh, a, a business that could be kind of um, de- detached or decoupled from sound fiduciary <laughs> judgment and just sort of getting mortgages to, into a lot of hands uh, could be a win for a, a person in a certain part of the pipeline and that all turned into credit default swaps. But overall, there was this sense anyway that that banks at the highest level felt no particular loyalty, no particular long-term loyalty to anything uh, except whatever kind of profit-taking could go on at, at these upper echelons. And and we suffered. I mean, America suffered uh, the kind of financial crisis that you would think would be uh, a big cold bucket of water in our faces, a face slap that would absolutely call us to our senses and, and insist that we begin thinking about this differently. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, to buy your lights in between 2008 and 2014, did we do that? No. I mean, I you know, that would have been my argument, too. And that was certainly the, the case that was being made in 2009, 2010. You know, this is sort of the financial version of 9-11. Everything is different. We'll never, you know, we'll never make that mistake again, or at least this generation won't. You know, it'll have to be our kids that will repeat these mistakes. But we're right back at it. I mean, there there are a few things that we can't do anymore because they've been prohibited outright by law. But for the most part, banks are once again venturing into risky areas. We're now wanting to get Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac back into the basically the subprime mortgage business. Um, in part because a lot of people who don't have the best credit are being frozen out of the mortgage market. So we're setting the stage again for what could be another bubble. And I think really what you have to acknowledge is if you look back at what was going on in the, in the run-up to the crisis, you know, we, we like to focus on the banks and the institutions, whether it was government institutions that over-encouraged home ownership or whether it was big banks that you know, exploited every possible opportunity but it's it really you have to focus on the individuals in those institutions because that's what it comes down to. It's just it's just people doing what people do, which is maximizing self-interest. And and the question is whether they maximize it in a way that takes into account other people's interests and long-term consequences, or whether they maximize self-interest in a very short-term way. And it was really the latter that became the model in a lot of the financial institutions. You know, you had executives, you had decision makers, investors, traders who really adopted what they called the what was it, IBG, YBG, that's I'll be gone, you'll be gone. Mm-hmm. And essentially that's what you said when anyone brought up a question about, geez, these derivatives look really like iffy and toxic. Are you sure we want to be bundling these up and selling them to investors? And, you know, your colleague would say, yeah, they might be a little iffy. In fact, we're going to we're gonna call them names like SHIT box and um, Mike Tyson punch out. We're going to indicate in our language that they're terrible investments. But the truth is, by the time anyone finds out, by the time these fall apart, you and I will have different jobs at different banks. So it won't matter. That sort of mentality, that occurs when you become essentially cynical about institutions. So what one thing we need to address is, is that cynicism, that sort of cynicism returning, such that individuals will throw in the towel as far as collective action goes and long-term consequences go, and once again focus on immediate self-interest. And I think that 
the answer there is both there's good news and there's bad news. Let's start with the bad news. The bad news is, you know, if you look at the financial system and the way that we are uh, moving back to adopt some of the many of the same patterns, what that indicates is a, a return to some of that cynicism among a lot of the executive decision makers on Wall Street. And that's that's a, a matter of huge concern. I think the good news is that at, on the level of the street, I think you're seeing among a lot of consumers, and if I may re, re-categorize them as citizens, mm-hmm. a lot of recognition that as a society we've really had gone too far in adopting a short-term perspective and people individually are, are looking to push that back or looking to find a different, a different model, a different mode. And they are reassessing the way they live. In, and it's in small ways in many cases and it's in in isolated incidents it's it's it it is in the it's in families that decide that they're going to go on an unplugged vacation the, my, when i first began hearing about this i thought that's ridiculous you know that that should even be a thing mm-hmm. but then when you realize how ubiquitous being wired into the system is now and how many of our kids have known nothing but a digital connection spending a a week away unplugged, reconnecting in a more face-to-face kind of humane way, human way, is probably a good start. That's an example of what I think, what I would describe as people pushing back against a system and I think more particularly pushing back against a set of values because a lot of what, what we're really talking about here is we've absorbed and internalized the values of the marketplace. And what I, what I think is happening in response to that, finally, belatedly, is individuals pushing back and, and, and insisting on replacing those market values with something of their own. Action in itself, I think, is hugely promising. I think the question now is, how would you raise that level of pushback so that it's not just happening individually and in isolation? How would you make that more of a national movement? Yeah, I want to come back to that, and I'm, I'm not as persuaded as you are uh, to be hopeful about that. But, but one thing that I would say, and you say it in the book in, in various places, is, you know, I mean, we look at all this, and, and uh, it's easy to have a declinist perspective on it. I, I do have a declinist perspective on it. On the other hand, you have to be aware of the fact that if you offered it to, I don't know, Henry Adams, uh, he, you know, here's all this stuff, here's all this, mm-hmm. here's this technological edge that we have that you don't have, he take it in a heartbeat. Almost anybody would take it. I mean, anybody except Thoreau, you know, a few others would probably take what we've got in a heartbeat. I mean, there's just so many uh, upsides to it all. You even go back to the financial model and, wow, you know, I mean, heading into to 1929, you're pretty much at the mercy of, you know, a, f- a few people or one person you trusted in terms of, you know, if you had any money, if you had, you know, anything to invest, you know, you probably had some college classmate who told you what to do with it. Now, I mean, you really can be pretty self-directed. People have these unbelievable, I mean, average people have these unbelievably diversified uh, portfolios. I mean, I'm a schmuck. I work for public radio. I'm I'm in, you know, bonds and, and but emerging markets and all kinds of things that I don't right. understand. But I think I am a little bit more protected there for than I would have been with a comparable set of skills and financial savvy in 1928. And I I just know as a result, partly of all the things that that you point out are are potentially so toxic, I'm also a little bit more protective and even a tiny bit more self-actualized. I mean, I can act in my own behalf. I'm not so much at the mercy of some other authority figure. Right. And and that's a that's an excellent point to make and to emphasize again and again when you are talking about what is otherwise a fairly compelling declinist narrative, and that is that we're essentially we're here because of our massive success. You know, we did come back from the crash in 1929. 
with a lot of protections for individuals, and those protections in many in many cases still exist. And further, the massive capabilities that have come from the economic growth since then, and, and especially the technological advances, those are real advances. I mean, it's not just a matter of being able to express who you really are. I mean, that's critical, but it's, it's being healthier. It's being able to manage your own health, for example, with all this self-tracking gear. It's being able to choose a job and work at home, for example, and be creative in ways that wouldn't have even been imaginable a generation ago. So there are countless ways in which this the same capability, the same ability to gratify works out in our favor and in really positive and sustainable and presumably sustainable ways. But I think what it all comes down to is that capability for individuals to act on their desires, on their aspirations, that capability is a double-edged sword. You need to manage it. I mean, in the same way that we're very careful, or supposedly with firearms, I mean, the people that are very supportive of the Second Amendment would tell you, look, a smart gun owner is a smart gun owner. They're very careful. And I think we need to recognize that capability of any kind needs to be approached with the same caution and the same understanding that it can it can be used in the wrong way. We're, we're afraid in this culture, in many respects, to even talk about managing individual capability because we feel in many cases that it impinges on that that right to be an individual. I mean, we're okay talking about managing someone else's capability, mm -hmm. but when it comes to our own, we're usually pretty reluctant. All right, we're going to grab another quick break here. We're going to come back with more of Paul Roberts after this. show over yet? When does Here and Now come on? Why do they call it Here and Now if it's not Here Now? Why don't they just call it There and Later? Stupid show. Be on! Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jeff Bezos. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff standing around the microwave oven yelling, come on, Hot Pockets, get done! Visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday, we revisit our show on the challenges and undeniable thrills of sexuality among overweight people. And now, back to Colin. We're talking to Paul Roberts. His book is called The Impulse Society, um, and, and the subtitle is America in the Age of Instant Gratification. Uh, he will be at the, uh, at the Yukon Co-op Bookstore, sponsored by the Yukon Humanities Institute. This is Monday, November 10th, uh, from uh, six, uh, 4 to 6 p.m., uh, and there'll be a book signing to follow his talk. Um, so uh, let's 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 talk about whether or not to be hopeful. So, well, let me begin in another place. You know, as you're writing this book, you know, and your your politics, and you kind of say it right out at some point in the book. Your politics is basically left of center politics, but you're kind of writing this book that is at least partly in the tradition of more conservative declinist manifestos, whether it's, you know, Christopher Lash or, I don't know, Philip Reese, Triumph Therapeutic, or pick something. You know, I mean, a lot of the closing of the American mind, a lot of these books, are like, well, we're just going in the wrong direction right now, and we're going in a direction that's more driven by ego and instant gratification, and if it feels good, do it. Uh, and what we really need is a restoration of traditional values. So that sounds much more like a conservative cultural argument. Go back to church. Start paying attention to your uh, community. You know, 
join a bowling league, stop bowling alone. Um, so I, I, do you feel as though writing this book, it didn't fundamentally change your values? What, what did it change? I don't know. I think the process, it, in some respects, it reminded me that, you know, the aging process is often a process of becoming more conservative and maybe just more aware of, of consequences. Um, I think that I, st I remain liberal in a sort of a political and, I suppose, fiscal sense, um, insofar as, as, as government tax, as tax money is, is spent and invested. Um, I am, but I'm much more concerned that, I mean, if I'm going to argue to, a, say, a pro-business free market person that corporations should be essentially uh, more shackled than they are right now, and that should have slightly less freedom than they do right now, at least in some respects, should have slightly more obligations to society. If I'm going to make that argument, I feel that I need to also make the argument to someone who's perhaps left of center and who was a big champion of following your dream and being able to express yourself completely and fully and without reservation. I feel be, being able to tell that person, no, you know, I, I you, you might need to rein that in a bit. And you might need to, if you know, recover some sense of of traditional limits and it might not be you know in the framework of let's say a religion but it's going to have to be in some framework because um i think a lot of what you know ails this culture is an unwillingness by individuals to put up with things that they don't want to put up with i mean patience you know walter mitchell has a wonderful book out now the marshmallow test and really he's basically asking there what happens when we don't teach our kids to be patient as kids, well, they grow up to be impatient adults, and that's devastating. And you know, I think that's an essential. So, so that's an essential to me. And some people would call that a traditional value. I just think it's a it's a practical, common sense survival skill. Um, you know, learning how to be patient, learning how to be self disciplined, learning how to look beyond the self, to imagine, to at least work for something larger than the self, at least periodically. You know, those are common sense. Uh, tactics that are essential for living in a community, living in a sustainable society. The challenge is that in many respects, the marketplace does not respect those values. It has no interest in a person who's patient because a patient person doesn't, you know, deliver enough transactions to keep sufficient revenues flowing in. So the market is interested in doing everything it can to erode your patience, to erode your self-discipline. And as far as the market's concerned, if you thought only of yourself and not of your friends, that might work out well, too, for their business plans. So, again, it's going back to that notion of, of the market's values and our own values and finding ways to push back against the values of the marketplace. If we want to call those, those our own values conservative, that's fine. I worry that that tends to polarize it more than necessary. I think we just need to you know, consider them common sense, practical values. You know, it, it, for every cultural action, there's a corresponding reaction. And so we do see a lot of the things that you're talking about. Some people being more interested in tradition. You write at the end of the book about millennials, how they seem to be um, able to sort of think across political categories and, and, and a little bit less polarized, a little bit more interested in issues of the common good. Um, and, and certainly, you know, we can see in ways that are eminently parodiable, you know, the, these, the, mm. the, the reactions against Amazon, Facebook, Google, instant gratification culture. You've got guys in Brooklyn taking nine months to make one pickle or something. You know, you have this huge artisanal, <laughs> uh, this artisanal movement that's all about sort of patience and care and smaller batches and, and, and 
in farmers markets and stuff like that, and I'm as big a part of that as anything else. But it does strike me that that's a shovel against the tide, and that that you know I am more of a declinist, I think, and I see the ultimate failure is still the failure of American exceptionalism, that if you look at other countries, they seem to be able to build their infrastructure with the notion of the common good. They seem to be able to build their education systems with the notion that educational inequality you know, is it is a bigger vice than the failure to you know to deliver one group of super students? You you look across the board at at you know we just did a show about that included what Denmark's doing about antibiotics uh, in uh, in in farm animals. You know, I mean they're able to kind of see a different picture. We did a show about the Finnish educational system. I don't know why we're in Scandinavia right now, but you know you look at, at countries that are able to build mass transit systems, whereas America still seems just so seduced by that. Um, immediate gratification notion of my car and I'll go wherever I want in, in, in my car. I, I don't know. I, I, you have you persuaded me that there's a problem, Paul Roberts, but I'm not quite sure that you persuaded me that we're on the verge of any kind of solution. Well, I mean, look, you know, we, we, you and I are both fully capable, and I think most of our fellow Americans are really capable of imagining the worst case. You know, about I think what I think the only thing really we have going for us is, is being able to imagine sort of the next worst, like stepping back from that worst-case scenario. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it may be that we the best we can do is only incrementally better than what we're going to get if we just leave things, if we just let the status quo determine our future. And maybe that's all we get. I mean, there's no constitutional guarantee that, you know, that America continues to thrive or that the whole human race survives. I mean, there's nothing in our DNA that says we're not ultimately self-destructive. Okay, so that's the worst case. Um, I suppose the worst case is that we suffer a lot before we self-destruct. But <laughs> it strikes me that we also have this this wonderful faculty that allows us to imagine different outcomes. And it was partly that faculty that allowed us to overcome our short-termism that's wired into our heads in the first place. You know, we built these institutions over thousands of years that essentially encourage individuals to think long-term, discourage them from short-term behavior, encourage them to make long-term investments, or at least sufficiently so that civilization could move forward. It took a long time. Those institutions are possible, and they're possible. I mean, they've clearly existed in the past, and they can exist again. I mean, the the sort of the European experience you just described, their better luck. I mean, that that essentially sounds quite a bit like the American experience of the post-war period. Mm -hmm. So we don't necessarily need to go to Europe to find an example. We can look at our own past. Now, people will argue, well, the post-war was very uh, unique in a lot of different ways, and those conditions may never be repeated. Fair enough. You know, we're not going to make, for example, global competition go away. But we can identify, you know, the institutional incentives that are pushing the wrong way right now and perhaps choose one or two or three or a dozen of them that perhaps could be blunted or even turned around the other way. I mean, there are specific things we could do. Campaign finance reform is a critical one. Now, I'm sure you will say politically that's impossible. But what if what if we, we decided to, to take a smaller bite? What if we decided that what the real problem here is that voters are so cynical they no longer have any faith in the in the system? What if though you could find you could do something, you could make some big political gesture that convinced a few a small percentage of the population that wow politics actually can work? Okay, so let's say you decided that let's 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 break up the big banks. I mean, there's a perfect rationale for it. I mean, you were just talking about how banks are 
you know, the, the larger the banks, the more likely they are to demand um, to be too large for the government to allow to fail. Mm -hmm. So they have a built-in insurance system, and that insurance encourages them to take larger risks. So by allowing these banks to survive as we have, we've set ourselves up for the next round of highly risky uh, financial ventures. And so we're going to have another crash sooner rather than later. If you break up the big banks, and there's a lot of conservative economists who would argue that we need to do precisely that, and a lot of conservative commentators. I mean, George Will at the Washington Will, Post. Yeah, yeah. So, so the point is that there is support across the spectrum. There's also a lot of popular support. I think that that's the kind of campaign that could begin. You could quickly develop enough popular support that could overcome Wall Street's strong lobbying uh, uh, force, and you could have yourself a success, a political success. Now, I'm not going to say that that's going to open the floodgates of goodwill and, and wipe out all cynicism, but I am going to suggest that without those kinds of successes, it's going to be very difficult for you to convince an electorate that anything different, anything but the status quo is possible. Um, you know, I, I would also argue that someone like uh, I had I was wondering, you know, if uh, Elizabeth Warren was going to run and if she was going to pick something like campaign finance as a as a campaign issue. You know, because that's what that kind of thing is going to take. It's going to take some leader that's willing to essentially go down, take take hits, and go down with a ship to fight for something like that. Um, but but again, I think that gestures that can help restore faith in the system, I think, are essential at this point. Which really makes it tough when you know I hate to say it, but the administration's response to the Ebola. I mean, yes, granted, it's been ex the, the threat has been ex exaggerated, but. You can't respond by putting a political operative as your Ebola's are. That's, <laughs> you, you just can't do that, and, and that should be obvious. Um, what we need are more gestures that, that inspire confidence. But again, I, I don't want to put too much emphasis on top-down because I, I don't think that's where ultimately it is. It has to come from the bottom up. And yeah, we're and talking about some of it has to come at the level of self-recognition, too. We've all got to understand our own culpability and the fact that, you know, I mean, I think we tend to sort of, you know, look at this. I don't know. We pick somebody like Anthony Weiner and say, look at this guy. You know, he's, he's right. so wired up to, to short termism, so unable to control his own impulses that in the middle of a political campaign, in the middle of his own political life, he's, you know, he's sexting. He's sending pictures of his genitalia to people he doesn't even know that well. What an idiot. And, and I think at that moment, we disassociate ourselves from a behavior that I'm not personally engaged in right now, but I'm probably engaged in something that could be compared to it, right? Because we actually are all wired up to the same circuitry, the circuitry you describe in our book. And until we admit that each and every one of us has been seduced by it, I think we have a hard time addressing it collectively. Yeah, I mean, look at the stuff that's mundane, that's done just it's a, become a totally normal thing of activity that, you know, a generation ago would, would have been regarded as obscene or just insane, you know, that we just do, I mean, posting stuff, you know, that it's like everyone does that. You might not post your nakedness, but, you know, it's norms change and they change in large part because of economics and technology. And I think we have to recognize that, again, it comes down to it. It's not a conspiracy. It's more about capability. We have a lot of capability in our hands. A smartphone, I mean, we talk about, well, it's got more computing power than, you know, used to be in NORAD, blah, blah. Okay, that's true. Recognize that that is a lot of capability and that you can do a huge amount of damage with that. It's, it's, it's like walking around with a forty four Magnum in your pocket. You know, be smart about it. I, I, a lot of this comes down to the way that, I hate to say it, but the way that boomers like myself parent. Because, you know, we're so afraid of anxiety. We, we so don't want the bad feelings that come with disciplining our children and teaching a child patience. I mean, a two-year-old that's being forced to learn patience is an unpleasant person to be around. We'd really like to avoid that. And so we essentially do what we can to avoid having to teach that lesson. And then we wonder why the kids are still living at home when they're like 33. <laughs> you know, it, 
it's it may be though that the generation that's out there the millennials having grown up in a financial crisis having grown up in a, a political system that's paralyzed and having grown up with parents who are you know pretty childlike in a lot of respects it'll be really interesting to see the sorts of things they do i mean they get criticized all the time as being you know too impulsive and um and lazy and slackers and all that stuff but that's essentially us that's how we are seeing them through the lens of our own experience and there's enough i think difference in the way that they see the world um that i i actually have hope that they're going to come up with ways to address some of these problems it's their ways are going to be different than ours and i think what we can do the favor the last sort of thing we can do at least right for them is to leave enough of the systems intact so that they have a chance you know um the education system the you know the infrastructure and not leave them too encumbered by debt uh, at least that's my hope when we they realize what we've done we'll be lucky if they don't intern us but anyway paul roberts uh i've got to go out my t- i got to get my 25 year old to clean his room so uh it was great Good to luck. talk to you <laughs> yes great Likewise. to talk to you uh the book is the impulse society america in the age of uh, instant gratification thanks for being with us today Kyone Wolf. Is the show over yet? Is it over yet? Is it over yet? It is? Huh, great. That went by fast.